Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is December 14th, 2017, and my guest is Matt Stoller. Matt is a fellow with the Open Markets Institute, and he has been writing some very provocative pieces on monopoly power and antitrust, particularly in the tech sector, that we'll link to. And he's also working on a book on the history of monopoly in the 20th century. Matt, welcome to EconTalk. Hey, thanks for having me. Now, our main topic for today is going to be what we might call the big three, Google, Facebook, and Amazon, but I'm sure we'll get into other things as well. But I want to start with them, as you do in in some of the pieces you've been writing. Um, What's alarming about them? They seem to be very popular. Uh, People like using these services, the services the companies provide. Uh, What's alarming? So they are – Facebook, Amazon, and Google are effectively becoming uh, so powerful and uh, with the ability to manipulate and control the way that citizens – interact with each other, the information and ideas and goods and services that we can uh, buy and sell from each other, that they are in some ways replacing democratic government. Um, So they've gone way beyond just sort of controlling markets. Now they are controlling, uh, in some ways, our political system. And I'll just give you a quick example. Um, So I guess it was last month, Amazon put out a bid for it to locate 50,000 jobs in uh, a second headquarters outside of uh, its first one, which was Seattle. And they asked cities from all over the country to bid on it. And you had cities offering to allow uh, to collect taxes from Amazon employees and just hand that money over to Amazon. You had some cities offering to name their cities after Amazon. You had some cities that were saying, um, you know, you can, we'll, we'll basically allow you to run the city. Um, and determine where your 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 tax money goes because we think it's it's ridiculous to waste things on waste money on things like fire stations in the edge of town. So you had this real really weird um, outcry from mayors all over the country saying you know democracy effectively doesn't doesn't really work um, and we can't generate our own commercial activity. We have to beg Jeff Bezos for that, and so we are going to do whatever we can. To attract him, and that is incredibly disturbing. I mean, you see, you see the power everywhere in lots of different crevices of our society, but I think the political power is most alarming. Yeah, well, that particular example is a little bit um, not as alarming to me as it is to you. There, there are other things I think that are alarming and more alarming than that. I mean, the fact that mayors do stupid things and um, are desperate for something to wave about as a economic development success has been a problem, I think, for a while. They do lots of bad things to attract large corporations to their towns for giving up tax revenue, for example, not as dramatically as you've described it with Amazon, at least uh, at least in the past. But I, I, I'm much more concerned, and I, and I don't think, I'm not sure how powerful Amazon is. I'm, I'm more concerned about Google and Facebook and their control over the information we received. Are you worried about that? Oh, absolutely. And so, these are in what yeah. way? Well, I mean, you know, 
There, there's, I guess there, there's sort of two different ways to think about it. And the, the first is uh, you have, you have institutions that are so large that they simply can't be managed. So Facebook has 2 billion users on its various networks. Google has seven products with more than a billion users. And what you find is all sorts of areas where the people that are managing these networks are just not paying attention uh, to parts of the networks that are damaging people. So as an example, uh, Google organizes the world's information. They've engaged in a whole range of conduct to make sure that different specialized search engines don't emerge and potentially challenge them in niche areas. And so one of the results is you have a health crisis um, that exists already, the opioid crisis. But when people who are addicted to opioids do a search for rehab clinics, um, what they will find is at first about a year ago, they would find a whole bunch of different ads from rehab clinics that weren't particularly uh, good, but were at, from out of state, would rip them off and would most importantly wouldn't help them off opioids. Um, and when Google found out about this, they got rid of the advertising. Uh, so they weren't, they're making a bunch of money on this, but they stopped making money on it. And then afterwards, uh, Google Google's search engine was actually manipulated and gamed by some of these uh, kind of scummy rehab clinics. And that's just an example. Um, so the net re result is that a bunch of people who are addicted to opioids and want to get off them can't. And that's incredibly harmful. And that's not because anybody at Google was um, sort of a bad person. Uh, it's just because they're, the institution, there's just the network is too big for them to actually manage. And you see that in all sorts of ways with institutions like Facebook, where you have lots of things just coming in the back door. So that's one problem. And that's a problem of, of absentee ownership. Uh, no one's minding the store. Uh, the other problem is that the algorithms themselves drive kind of extremist behavior. So um, these are these are based, um, the algorithms that Facebook uses or that Google uses to sort of attract you and keep you using their technologies, keep your attention so they can sell you more advertising, they have uh, specific biases built in that are not good for human beings. So as an example, um, if you are, say, a conspiracy theorist around um, vaccinations, they will say the recommendation engine will tell you, well, maybe you're interested in this thing called Pizzagate or maybe you're interested in this thing called, um, you know, sovereign citizen. Um, if you're and, and, it, and it, it doesn't matter if it's a right or a left thing, it's just it's an extremist generating engine. So if you're if you're interested in being a vegetarian, maybe you should try becoming a vegan or 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 whatever. And it, and it keeps you and pulls you into a more and more extremist sort of socially dysfunctional position, because it, essentially it's it's manipulating your brain in a way that is um, that's very similar to the um, the desire to see a fight going on where you just can't look away. And the, the algorithms that these guys use, because they are so attention-based, um, actually incentivize sort of the worst socially dysfunctional behavior. So those are two basic problems. You um, left and off that's the third, which is the ability of, say, a foreign country to encourage well, people to so, look at nasty things. Well, that, that, that's true. Uh, that actually is, is falls under the absentee ownership problem. So we have a huge national security issue with the ability of uh, foreign actors or disruptive social elements to come in and just manipulate people because there is actually nobody 
um, managing the, the the store in a lot of these places. So Russia could, for, exa- for example, come in and sort of organize people who are pro-Black Lives Matter or against Black Lives Matter to all come to a, you know, to a protest together outside a mosque and encourage people to engage in open carry. You know, this is really dangerous stuff. And it's because there, there, are, no commu- there are no actual community leaders in Facebook. Facebook is just a, a giant um, kind of platform where there are no rules and there are no uh, real community leaders. So that's that's a, a subset of the absentee ownership problem, but it, it is a massive problem. Then you have all the other problems too. I mean, the monopolization issue is just a, it's just chewing apart uh, local media in particular, but also uh, just funding streams, financing streams for for media. Um, Amazon is crushing the book market. Um, you know, there's just there's just it's well, I wanna, just I crazy come back what to we're that. doing. I want to come back yeah. to that because I I disagree with that part of the critique, but I'm very interested in the, the first parts, um, and we'll talk about all of them, but the, I hope, if I remember. Um, but on the case of um, the extremist argument, which I think is really interesting, I, um, now it's not working on me, uh, as it turns out, because I don't use Facebook. I do use Google a lot, and I use Twitter, and I think Twitter is um, is a little bit different. It's, it's sort of a self-generated uh, extremist uh, problem that People who want to get attention on Twitter, the louder the better. And so I do tend to see a lot of angry things on Twitter. But it hasn't – it's pushed me – I'd say it hasn't pushed me at all. I, for other reasons, I've avoided those uh, encouragements that you're worrying about. And, and I think most people have, but many haven't, obviously. I don't know how much of that extremism we can put at the feet of uh, Google and Facebook for sort of in- – that the algorithms are giving people uh, really creepy things to look at. Um, it's, there's no way of – I don't know if that's true, right? I don't know. That's a supposition, right, that that, that to get I, – I, let me say it differently. I, there are a lot of things they do to keep my attention, um, to keep me using the product. They're not all sinister, but some of them might be. Most of them aren't sinister. But let's start with the first premise, that it doesn't work on you. Uh, because I think I think it's absolutely the case that it that it it doesn't drive everyone to become a Pizzagate extremist. I think fundamentally we are people who have some free will. We have some cognitive ability to control our own environment. However, um, let's take Twitter, okay? Because one of the one of the things that that uh, these these guys draw from gaming uh, from gaming. Uh, I don't know. To call it from, but from casinos and from video games, but basically addictive from things, <laughs> addictive so- social psychological tricks that work on everyone. So, as an example, when you see a uh, on your Twitter notification or on your Twitter screen, it says you have eight notifications that have mentioned you, or you have twelve notifications. Um, that number is there to make you click on that. I get right? so and excited, it, I can't help it. That part does well, get me. I, I, it, right. I mean, it yeah. does. And so, like, I know that when I sit down to Twitter, it may not, uh, it may not be changing kind of my opinions. Although it puts a lot of things in front of me, and so I'm just exposed to information that I wouldn't have necessarily been exposed to for sure. Anyway, for sure. Um, and yet, I get sucked in because of these notifications, right? So I might sit down and I might say, "Oh, you know, I wonder." I'll just take a quick look at Twitter and then, you know, half an hour has passed and I didn't mean to spend a half an hour 
doing this. It's just, I just got sort of sucked in and I can, I can then pull myself out, but it's very, very hard to actually, you know, it's, it's just, you're, you're just kind of controlled by these things in some ways. There's a Pavlovian response that you have and it's not going to turn you into a vegan. Uh, it might turn <laughs> someone else into a vegan, it's but it's going to waste that half an hour. It's yeah. going to waste that hour. And you have no ability to say, I'd like a Twitter without those addictive properties. You have no ability to say, I'd like a Facebook that doesn't generate these uh, you know, these, these types of algorithms. So just as a metaphor for what these guys do, I mean, I think Facebook more than, more so than Twitter, Twitter has a, a different set of problems, but, uh, but Facebook interacting on Facebook because they want you to, uh, or Instagram or, or some, they want you to engage and they want you to stay addicted, uh, or stay engaging. Um, it's kind of like having somebody in a bar where you're talking to a friend, uh, and there's a guy in the corner just constantly saying, fight, Fight. Come on. Come on. You say, I, I heard what he said about you. I heard what she said about you. It's like, it's not necessarily going to make you fight. Right. But like having one person, a couple of people, you know, and these algorithms improve, they get better. Um, having those people sort of in the bar kind of encouraging this kind of conflict, it's not going to make fighting less likely. Right. No, it can only sure. make it more likely. So it's like even, and it, and it will work on the most sort of peaceful person out there. They will be, they will still be incredibly peaceful, but they will just be a little less peaceful. So it moves, it moves kind of everyone. And so that's where we are right now. We're in just psychologically, when we're dealing with these institutions, they are having this kind of massive impact on the things we see. And I was talking about the opioid um, sort of rehab problem, but, but Google governs the, a lot of the information that I get, right? They, that Google is just choosing what information it thinks I will find useful. I don't have any, I don't know how they're doing that. They are governing what I see and Facebook is governing the social interactions that I have on, uh, with my friends on Facebook. Um, Mark Zuckerberg is mediating that or these algorithms are mediating that. And I have no power over how that is mediated. And that is crazy, because um, fundamentally, those are not Mark Zuckerberg's friends. Um, these are not Twitter's relationships. Uh, and the fact that they can choose how I have to interact with these people and I have no power over that, I can't build competitive systems on top of it, that, that's, I think, really worrisome uh, for, our, for our society, um, for our markets, um, and for our democracy. Well, I find it a little bit worrisome, um, and we'll talk about you know, how worrisome it is maybe in a minute, but... Uh, let's ask the question, which which I've said many times on this program, and I know you don't agree with it, which is you don't have to use it. So what's wrong with that argument? If you don't like the way Facebook uh, connects you to your friends or the way it adds things to your timeline or your feed or whatever it's called, I don't, I'm, a, I'm not a good Facebook user. I'm a Twitter guy. Um, I, I don't have to use it. And in fact, those sort of compulsive, it's like, the guy in the bar, I can stop going to the bar in, in real life. And I'm thinking of – I go less to Twitter now than I did three months ago because I don't like what it's what it does to me. I don't like that guy in the corner saying fight, fight, fight. So I, I agree with you. There's there's some damaging things about it. Uh, aren't we free to just say no to them? You think you can't – you don't have to use these products. So you can just sort of – you know, just log off. You don't like it. Just log off. Um, and – in fact, that's not true. In fact, these institutions are mediating our society. You live in that society. Uh, they are tracking you uh, on websites and services that you are not a part of. They are organizing the financing of uh, the media systems that you read. Um, you are not 
able to escape them. If you don't use Google, you everyone you interact with does. Uh, if if you don't use Facebook, you know Facebook is still taking money from the newspapers that you read, so you have worse news. Um, you are still living in a society where elect conversations about our elections are are run on Facebook. So so you are a part of these these institutions are governing you well, whether f- you use I'm them effect- or not. But, but, but hang on, let me. Them. Right. What I'm affected by them. I certainly understand that. But right. But let me. But let me give you a more a more granular story, which is the one about Mike Turk. But this is this is something that I think a lot of parents are experiencing, and it is that, um, you know, Mike's kid, who he has a couple of kids, but one of them's a teenager who is using YouTube and uh, kind of the recommendation engine on YouTube is very good, and so his kid will just watch it all day. Uh, And YouTube has a bunch of creepy stuff, like really weird, sexualized, violent um, type of videos that are just millions of kids are watching. Um, And what, uh, but so, so Mike is like, look, my kid plays video games. He watches YouTube. uh, He hangs out in these platform online hangouts, talk about video games. That is a problem. And and Mike just cut it off. He said, I'm going to block all of you, your, um, these sites so that you are uh, you know, you're a normal kid. And he did that and his kid, you know, is a normal kid who just has this, this addictive, uh, who's addicted to, to the internet. But when he, when he's not allowed to use it, he's fine. Okay. So, so Mike is like, he, he blocks the video games. He blocks the video game hangouts. Um, but he can't block YouTube for some reason. And he tries. Um, but it turns out that I, you know, you can't block YouTube if, someone ha- is using Chrome. Chrome is a browser that's made by Google. So he's like, that's it's kind of crazy. And Mike is a, from the telecom world. He's very good at, uh, at tech. Um, he's like an IT guy. But he couldn't figure out how to actually block uh, YouTube. So he's like, screw it. I'm just going to delete Chrome off of my son's computer and I'm going to put a different browser on and then I won't let him go to any Google Sites because if he can go to Google.com, he can just download Chrome and he knows how to do this. He'll download Chrome and then he'll be able to watch YouTube again. So, um, so he tried. He tried to do that. So he 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 deletes Chrome and he puts a different browser on. But then he finds out that his son has to use Google because Google has to deal with his son's school system and the homework is actually done on Google products. And this is true across, there's a lot of kids that are now being, Google is handing out Chromebooks, and Chromebooks are really cheap. They're good computers, but you, you can't actually block YouTube. So what, what Google is doing is they have vertically integrated not just the browser uh, and YouTube and their search engine and Maps and a bunch of other products. They've actually vertically integrated into the school system, and they have more power over what Mike's kid sees than Mike does. Mike's a conservative Republican. Not he's not a he's not a Democrat. He's on your side of the fence. But this I'm is, not a conservative Republican, Matt. Just for the record, but go ahead. Oh, you're not. Okay. No. <laughs> well, then then you're a then okay. Well, whatever. Um, he's he's a conservative Republican, and I'm not. So I just <laughs> that's fine. Um, Keep going. But the but the point here is that Mike can't actually structure the environment that he wants for his kid because of the power that Google has. So that's. If you think that there um, that you don't have to use these, um, it might be true for you, but it's certainly not true for kind of millions of parents. 
and and millions of kids who are being raised on this stuff and have no choice about it. So that's a that's a great example. And I and I read that article that that where you told that story. It's a, it's a great article. It's really interesting. And I and I wanted you to tell that story. So I'm glad you did. The question is, let's let's stick with that for a minute. What's the what's the lesson there? What what should we do? I mean, so that's outrageous, right? So what should you do about that? What should what should we favor? What what policy response do you think is appropriate in that situation? Well, I think the the first thing that you have to do is you have to just admit that we have a really serious problem with the power of Google. Right? That's the very first thing that we have to do. Um, and once we've once we've admitted that, and that it's a political problem, it can only be addressed through politics. Then Wait a there's why a whole is, bunch. Why is that? I mean, couldn't I? I guess I. I mean, I, my first thought is, the school doesn't have to require that relationship. You might not. That might not be a healthy thing to have a corporation in a school in cahoots like that. Maybe but that's, that's a, a political. Idea. That's a political statement that you're making. Yeah, the school is a political of. institution. It is. That's uh, yeah. Uh, that's true. It's a shame, but uh, that's a truth. Uh, and we have limited control over what our schools do, and we have limited control over what Google does. So we're kind of at the mercy of both of them. So we have a kind of a dilemma here. Neither of them are responding potentially to what we want. What's the best way to get closer to what we want without some unintended consequences? And I would just add, and this is, I think, the real challenge. You, you said you have to first recognize that Google's too powerful or, or, or is harmful. Most of us love it, right? And, I, I, again, I'm very worried about some of the things you're, you're raising. I think they're very concerning. But at the same time, I've got this great thing going where I buy a, a plane ticket – and I get a confirmation that I bought the ticket via Gmail. And Google just is so smart. It, it's not really smart, but the algorithm is so well done that it immediately puts that trip into my calendar and I don't have to deal with it. And I really like that. I'm not alone, obviously. I don't, there are many, many things Google does that don't do anything for me. And I think a lot of other things they do, people like a lot that don't excite me positively. But the, part of the problem with this is that a lot of people like what they do. They love it, actually. They don't just like it. It's... They they enjoy using it every day, and the fact that Mike Turk's kid is not protected from some gross stuff on YouTube, they'd say, "Well, that's Mike Turk's problem." I don't. I, I think it's might be everybody's problem or somebody else's problem besides Mike the, or his school's problem. There's some, there's a lot of stuff going on there, but um, isn't that a big problem with with your starting point that that to get people worried about a lot of them just they don't see what the worry is. They like all this stuff. Well, I think I think people are I think you're giving you're not giving people enough credit. I mean, people can both uh, can both enjoy the ability to fly across the country while at the same time recognizing that, you know, they don't particularly love baggage fees or they don't particularly think that American Airlines is doing a particularly good job with that technology. Um, So they can love I love the ability to use Google or Amazon um, to find out all sorts of great things. Um, and I use these products constantly. Um, but I can separate out the technology with the, from the political power. And I think, you, I think people can say, yeah, I, I really like using this search engine. But I also think that Google has, as a political institution, has too much power. Um, People are mature enough to handle that. So, you know, schools are political institutions. We have, and thank God they are. I mean, school boards, you know, are elected in a lot of places. And, you know, you don't have to, you can say to Google, 
you know, you want to be in the school, um, you are not allowed to sell Chromebooks that uh, that prevent the blocking of YouTube. Or you can say, we're going to investigate you and figure out how the company works, uh, figure out how these algorithms work, and then we'll make a bunch of decisions about the best way to fit your system into a democracy. And I think we have to do that because these are not simple questions. It's very important to not sort of shoot from the hip and say, you know, we need to, you know, chop you up this way or chop you up that way. I mean, these are these are multinational companies. They have billions of users. They are they are very complicated institutions. And what we need to do first is we need to actually investigate and understand how they work. Um, that's kind of the, the first thing that I would that I would sort of call for. So I think you have to acknowledge that they are political problems. And I think people are ready to acknowledge that they are political problems. Not that we should eliminate them, not that they're not great tech, that they, that they don't have great technologies. But I would also note that the things you're talking about that people like about Google, um, you know, Google is very well liked and Amazon is, 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 is trusted. And, um, but uh, Facebook's not so much, but Google and Amazon are really well liked. But these are these are institutions. You have to dis- disaggregate the the technology and the, what the engineers have built: the search engine, the the video service, the the various you know Alexa, those kinds of things, from the financial holding company structure. So Google is a financial. It's a search engine. But it's also a financial holding company called Alphabet, and it has a bunch of different products in that in that holding company. And those products are largely the, the result of, of mergers and acquisitions. So nobody would care if you say split off, say YouTube and the Google search engines and Google maps, uh, because those are all, or, or, or double click, because those are all actual, you know, Google search engine was developed internally, but the others were all just sort of bought and cobbled together and then used uh, in ways that are potentially anti-competitive. So it's not that you're actually destroying the technology, destroying the things that people love. In fact, you're liberating it. Um, and, that, and that's kind of the way that I think about these things, is you have to think about it in the context of what is the financial concentration versus what is the necessary concentration to do the really great things that we all love. But you also have to give credit to people um, who are mature enough to see that they really like you know, they really like being able to do these cool things, whether it's flying or whether it's driving a car or whether it's doing using a search engine um, and the political institutions, the financial structures that are actually managing those industrial arts. Some of this, of course, is surely under our choice in the following sense. Uh, let's take the search engine part. If I think that or if a news report comes out that Google is is corrupting search findings to benefit, say, people who pay more in certain ways or disrupting our political system. And I think there's some evidence that's true. Uh, let's move to a different search engine. There's, there's a, there are other search engines. There's DuckDuckGo. There's Bing. We could use those, right? If Do you think – I mean we could have a campaign to get people to stop using Google's search engine to reduce Google's power. Do you think that's a good idea? Well, look, I mean we've had a campaign – to get people to stop using Google search engine. It's called Bing. I mean, Microsoft yeah. had has spent enormous amounts of money to try to get people to move from Bing, and, and it hasn't worked at all. So there, there is sort of this notion that, that competition is just a click away, but the actual evidence is that it there, it's not. It just isn't. So well, that's because people sure. are content with Google. Now, maybe they shouldn't be because they don't know about these effects that you're talking about, which I think is a 
very much the case. Well, we don't know. We don't actually know that. I mean, we know that that people are um, uh, are using Google, but beyond that, we can't make a supposition that people are just content with it. And if there was a sort of you know different and and better product, they wouldn't you know go to that. As an as just an example, um, you know, there was this big uh, European Union case uh, that Google you know, was fined about $2.7 billion for. And the origin of the case is with a competitive search engine called Foundum. And Foundum, which I don't think it exists anymore, but it used to be a, a shopping comparison engine, which means that you would, it was basically a search engine, but for prices. So if you were to, to type in a certain, say, brand of bicycle, you would find, you know, uh, if you went into Foundum and typed it out, it would give you prices from a bunch of different vendors. And you could you could pick the one that, that you wanted. And there were a bunch of these shopping comparison engines. Um, in, uh, I guess it was around 2009 or 10, uh, it was somewhere around there, Google uh, decided that this was, uh, they didn't, this was spam. Uh, or they decided that they didn't like it, one of the two. And so they did is, first they created their own shopping engine. So you could compare on the Google shopping engine as well as Foundum uh, and a bunch of these others. But then they actually downgraded all of these um, shopping engines in, in, their, in their natural search algorithm into spam. So it took, you'd have to go through multiple pages uh, when you search to even find them. And this, of course, killed all their traffic. And naturally, Google didn't actually um, change, uh, do that to their own shopping comparison engine. So people would go to Google's shopping comparison engine, and they killed all their rivals. Now, all these guys went out of business. Now, here's what's interesting. What happened next is, Google then killed their own shopping comparison engine and replaced it with a, an ad-driven uh, engine. So you would type in that bicycle, and now you don't get sort of different prices from across the web. You get a list of people, of ads of, for people who have paid Google to show you whatever product they want to show you at whatever price they want to show you um, when someone types in that, say, bicycle. And that is a very dangerous um, uh, move, and it's something that you know people have no idea that it even happened. But I imagine that people, when they're looking for prices, for the best prices for things, would prefer to have uh, a, a comparison engines that they can look at as opposed to things that are put in front of them by merchants that are paying to get there. Right, and of course I agree with that, except... The question is, you know, what do you, what do you want to do about that? And there's two issues there. One is, uh, you know, what level of intervention do you think is appropriate to reduce the probability of that? The real puzzle, though, to me as an economist is, so these things are happening. I mean, there's a lot of things like that, I think. I'm going I'm to take – I'm going to assume you're right about that story. I, I didn't know it, I'm gonna, but it's plausible to me. And let's say it's true. So – why wouldn't an alternative search engine that exists that's really good, by the way? The only re- I don't use Bing. Uh, the reason I don't use Bing is I'm not in the habit of using it. It's but if I did use it, I bet it's pretty good. Uh, and DuckDuckGo is I think pretty good, maybe very good. Maybe they're both very good. I don't know. Hard to measure, but let's say they are. Wouldn't they want to take out some ads to remind people that that they don't do that? Now, of course, you don't know if that's true. At least, but it's interesting that there's. There is actual competition. It just doesn't seem to be manifesting itself in the way that it normally would in a more competitive market. I don't think it's because there's only three players. I'm not sure what the reason is, but it's well. Strange. I have I have used DuckDuckGo, and um, it is 
so so okay, let's let's just talk about the search engine, how to build a search engine, say ten years ago, fifteen years ago. Um, or when Google started, right? There were a bunch of search engines when Google started, Lycos and all these other things. Alta Vista, Yahoo, yeah, Alta et Vista. Um, and so what these what what these guys did is they mapped the web, they um, and then they chose different with different ways of displaying it to you, um, and Google did the same thing. And then you so you'd think, well, it's a web, it's the web. You can map it today, and if you want to compete with Google, and in fact, Google search engine no longer works by mapping the web. Google is so powerful that it, in fact, in many ways, structures the web based on uh, the the data that it has about kind of about everyone else. So Google knows a lot about you, more about your web habits than you do, or more about my web habits than I do. Do and and it knows it has a lot of other information about me, uh, kind of, and and it uses that to improve. Uh, it's search engine that I then access, and Google um, has that ability because they have access to that data um, because of. And this is what I'm told. I'm not. I'm not a, I don't know anything about AI, but I'm told that they kind of these big data sets are increasingly important to actually be able to produce relevant search queries to be able to do a whole bunch of things, like for example. Google Translate, or there, there's all of these services and searches, just one of them, that can only be perfected if you have mass quantities of data. DuckDuckGo just doesn't have that data. And, uh, you know, it's it's not clear that Bing has that data. And so the quality of the results is bad. Um, so there, there effectively aren't competitors. Well, I don't I mean, know if it's sick. bad, I, I, but it would be well, I've used I've used DuckDuckGo. It just doesn't work for me. Um, and I wanted to use it, but it just doesn't work. Um, and that's and like people will tell you, if you want to create a kind of modern um, a search engine in today's web, you need enormous quantities of data. And there are three companies, maybe a few more than that, but basically just three that have that quantity of data. And it's Facebook, Google, and Amazon. If you don't have that data, you you just can't play. So before we maybe get, maybe Microsoft, maybe Apple. So before we get to the, uh, I just have to make an historical remark, which. Um, you can respond to it if you'd like. Of course, many, many, many times in the past, we've been told that this company or that is going to have too much power over us. It used to be IBM. They're not important anymore. It used to be Microsoft. They're not important anymore. It used to be Apple with iTunes. They're going to control the music market. And Spotify crushed, seems to be crushing them. I don't know if they really are, but to my eye, ear, and the rest of my life, Spotify is, is dominating uh, my iTunes experience. So why is this going to be different? Why is it that in the past when companies got too big or too powerful, they were destroyed by upstarts? Is that not going to happen this time, you think? Well, let's talk about IBM and Microsoft. And before that, I think you could point out a bunch of them. Um, but AT&T... Um, you know, IBM was a dominant market player in the really until the late 1960s and early 1970s, and it controlled. There was no software market because you bought IBM hardware. IBM gave you software for free, and IBM pursued a range of tactics that would um, to prevent people from uh, actually using other uh, companies' computers. And what happened is the Department of Justice, in I guess it was the last day of the Lyndon Johnson administration, filed an antitrust suit against them. It was actually, I think, the third antitrust suit. There was one in the 30s. Uh, there was one in the in the 50s, and then there was one in um, in 
69 to 82. And that suit uh, <laughs> caused IBM to, st- I mean, it was a crazy long suit, yeah. that long, but it caused, uh, but one of the things that it did is it, is it made IBM uh, act on its best behavior. Uh, so that IBM was worried. It was a very capable, competent company, and they were able to crush rivals very quickly. But once the suit started, they got really worried uh, that they were engaging in anti-competitive behavior. And so what, one of the things that they did is they unbundled, um, they unbundled their hardware and their software. So they said you could buy the software separately. And what this did is it opened up the market for other software players to sell onto IBM machines. It created the American software industry. Before that, in the 50s, the antitrust suit against IBM said, uh, it did a number of things, but one of the things that it did is it said, you have to share your uh, your your patents um, and you have to open up your um, uh, what you're doing, the know-how to other institutions, other companies. Um, this was true for IBM and AT&T and RCA. And as a result, we had an open electronics industry and very you know, in that decade, you had companies like Motorola, um, Texas Instruments, and a variety of others forming using the patents that had been unlocked through these these DOJ antitrust strategies. In the 1970s, it, the um, the uh, uh, software industry was created. Also, another thing that happened is the first computer language. I think it was, but not the first, but Unix was a computer language that was created actually by AT and T, but because they were constrained into the telephone market. And um, they were not allowed to sell uh, uh, computer languages, so they just gave it away to universities, and that's what created open source software. Um, the the Microsoft is another interesting example because Microsoft had been planning to dominate the the internet in 1995. I mean, Bill Gates had a famous all company memo about the importance of the of the internet, and so one of the things that they did is they first tried to buy into it, which made um, Banking software and personal finance software because that's a company that name into it. I N T U I T. Yeah, it's Quicken. Uh, Quicken um, lending, you know, Quicken software, and because uh, they thought that that was going to be the backbone of the internet, but they would have continued to buy uh, companies if they had been able to. Um, uh, uh, they would have continued to buy companies, but the DOJ blocked them from buying into it because they said, we want the internet to actually be open. And that was actually a precursor to the antitrust suit, which had the same effect on Microsoft that it had on IBM. And I just want to say one actual, go back to IBM for a second. In 1980, I think it was in the early 80s, maybe 80, uh, must have been 82 or 81 or something like that. Uh, maybe it was the late 70s. But when when IBM decided to put together their personal computer, they did it because Apple had come out with a personal computer. And one of the reasons Apple was able to, to do what they did with the graphical user interface is because Xerox was under an antitrust investigation. So they were willing to share a bunch of stuff with, uh, with younger companies. But, uh, but IBM was under an antitrust investigation. So they, uh, when they built the personal computer, instead of controlling all the suppliers themselves, which they used to do, they said, well, you know, we will uh, we will license. We will treat you differently. We will treat you well. And they gave this contract for the operating system to Microsoft. They gave a contract for the microchip to um, Intel, and it created this kind of open ecosystem for uh, for the personal computer, which allowed all of these companies like Dell and uh, and um, I forget, but there were there were a lot of personal computer manufacturers. Um, so, so you had this open ecosystem, which was an explicit creation of, of DOJ policy. And then in the late 1990s, after the Microsoft and Microsoft Crete was formed out of that, I mean, that's that's the reason it was able to 
to be a massive company instead of just a vendor to IBM. And then in the late 1990s, after the Intuit um, acquisition was blocked by the DOJ after Microsoft tried to buy that, uh, then there was the antitrust suit against Microsoft, and Microsoft stopped engaging in anti-competitive behavior. Um, they were able to sort of strangle Netflix, uh, not Netflix, uh, Netscape, although Netscape was, didn't, wasn't particularly managed well. But they weren't able to do the same thing to, uh, to Google and to Facebook and to the, uh, the sharing, you know, the sort of Web 2.0, uh, because they had been, their culture had been changed by the DOJ suit, not to strangle anyone in the crib. Yeah. And so once I, mean, I you like find that story, Matt, but I, I, some of that I accept. Well, what you, but what, what you find is that the revolutionary who becomes the king doesn't want the next revolutionaries to come and overthrow them. And so they will do everything they can to prevent that. And the only thing that you can do, that American antitrust law was written to stop that from happening, to make sure that the king couldn't keep other people out of the market, and it worked. Companies don't just fall because of a natural cycle in the market. They fall because of political choices to open up and oxygenate the market for other people. And let's just be clear about something. Microsoft is still a very profitable company. It still exists, and IBM still exists. These companies didn't die. They just had to make way for other innovators in the ecosystem. Well, I... I, part of that story, I think, is true. Uh, I think it's true that they may have been on their best behavior, but I think their their failures to uh, innovate were not due to the DOJ uh, oversight. You can argue that their culture became less innovative. I find that a little bit of a stretch, given that monopolists tend not to be so innovative to start with. Um, so that's a debatable. I don't want to debate it, but I'm just saying I don't. I'm not convinced. It's an interesting argument. Uh, I think most of the failures of IBM and and Microsoft were that they had more nimble, smaller companies that came along and did a better job at new opportunities. But uh, there's more, perhaps, to the story. The question is, I mean, I'm not, I'm agnostic about whether the, the, the DOJ, the Department of Justice, is uh, um, has been important in, in that kind of thing. I, I, I'm open minded about your story. The question is, what do they do now? Right now, we have this very strange thing where these these companies are large in a way the part that's alarming to me is that they're large in a way that isn't the way a company was large before if a company was like general motors had a big share of the auto market and yes you could still buy ford you still buy chrysler there weren't many imports at the time now that market's much more open and all those american companies are smaller they're more nimble they make much better cars it's been a great thing as that market's been opened up mostly by foreign competition and, and some domestic attempts at, at, at doing better. But it seems to me that what makes, say, Facebook different or Google different is, first of all, the network effects that they need lots of people, and it's no fun to be on a network of friends that only has seven people on it. And the second is is that it's become an enormously important piece of the fabric of our lives way beyond, say, my car or way beyond, the say, my um, – you know, some item of clothing that might have some, in theory, doesn't, but it could, monopoly power. This is, uh, it's it's much harder to start a new Facebook. I, I'm open to that fact. Now what? And and I would, and I ask you to, I'm going to give you two challenges. One, tell me what policies we should pursue to make this problem that you're identifying better. And second, are there policies in place now that are making it harder for new startups to to innovate in these areas. Okay, so let's just start with the that first we should one. get rid of. 
So the first one, what should we do now? And I, I, it's a big question. I think we need to do a lot of investigating, but that's kind of, I don't want to make that a dodge because uh, it sounds like a dodge to be like, we need to know more, but we really do need to know more. Sure. We don't understand how these companies work. It's fair enough. But I think a very simple thing that we could do is to just block all acquisitions by Facebook, Amazon, and, and Google. Like if you just stopped them from acquiring companies, um, then you would see that they couldn't, um, they, they wouldn't be able to block, you know, the emergence of new, of new competitors into the market. It would be much harder for them to do that. Cause right now what Facebook does is they have, they have this, um, they bought, I think it was 2011. They bought a company called Anavo, which is, um, it doesn't really matter what it is. It's just, it's on a bunch of phones and people, it, it, it's like a malware tracker. A bunch of people downloaded it. And it essentially, enough people have downloaded it that it gives, it gives Facebook, you can, Facebook can, Anavo can like see what you're doing on your phone. Um, see how you use your phone, track you in real time. And there's a statistically large enough people who have Anavo so that if you own the company, you can see uh, how the web is being used. And so what Facebook does with uh, the data that it's getting from Anavo is it basically looks and sees which apps are becoming popular. It has a, it can, and how people are using them. So it can spy on any new potential competitor. And what it does is it, is it keeps a database of new companies that are growing very quickly uh, and, and will buy them or copy them very quickly. And I'm not, I'm not talking about like within a year. I'm talking about within a month. It will see a new product that's come on the market that's gained a bunch of users, and they will begin incorporating the, those products' design choices into their existing products, and they will actually buy that, buy that company. Uh, if it if it's growing fast enough, so they just bought one called TBH, which is a social network for teens that was growing really quickly. They bought it after three months. Um, they um, so so first you just got to say okay, no more of that, no more Anavo, and no more uh, no more buying companies because that way people will actually start businesses and they'll try to compete with these guys instead of just trying to sell out to them. Um, and the other thing you can do is you can undo some of the recent acquisitions. So you can undo the maybe the uh, the Instagram acquisition or the WhatsApp acquisition. Um, you can look back and undo the Amazon Whole Foods acquisition. Those are some things you could do that wouldn't be particularly difficult um, and and are not like you're not going to like mock up any really deep seated sort of relationships. Um, there's a bunch of other things that you can do. There's a bunch of tests that are being performed. There's some regs that are happening in Europe, which are going to get implemented in uh, next year. Their privacy rules. We'll see how they work out. Uh, they might do good things. They might do bad things. Um, but basically, we need to be really be studying these companies. We need to be comparing different political choices, and we need to be stopping acquisitions. And that's that's the law. The law exists to do that. It's called the Clayton Act. The FTC and DOJ could just take a different enforcement approach, and there we go. So that's that's an answer to your first question. Well, what was your second question? Uh, are there things? Or do that, you want to? No, I want. Let's stick that. with that. I'm not. So, the second question's. My second question was: Are there things that are in place now that are making it harder for competitors? I've I've read that you know you, you it's hard for people to share their Facebook information with a would be Facebook competitor to make it hard. That makes it harder for and the government enforces that, and that's not a good thing. Um, but let's stick with the first thing. Let's stick with this with this first point. So I'm. And I, and I want to ask you about one other thing, too, which is um, I want to come back to the media issue and the freedom of the press 
First Amendment issues. I think it's very important. But I mean, I'm really kind of glad. Aren't you kind of glad Amazon bought Whole Foods? Does that bother you? Does that make you nervous? Or is it just sort of you think they're big enough? Let's not let them get bigger. I mean, I'm not even sure Amazon's going to make money. I know it's a crazy claim. We've talked about it a little bit here on the program before. Most their, almost all their profit comes from their cloud services. Their retail business is limping along, barely making a, making a profit. They can well, just- I know that that's not that's not exactly true. They they aren't making a gap, you know, a profit based on accounting metrics, but they they generate massive free cash flow. They spend whatever something like twenty billion dollars a year on research. They could just turn on the spigot whenever they want. There's no they. they Amazon's a massively profitable company. It's why you know Jeff Bezos is not worth a hundred billion dollars a you know he's not worth a hundred billion dollars because Amazon's a charity and it's not a no no. Business. But I don't think they make I don't think their their retail side of their activity, which is the books, the clothes, the gardening tools, and everything else that they now have on their site, I don't think they make much money on that, if any, barely. They're barely profitable. I mean, of course, of course they do. I mean, of course they do. Why they is make that? enormous amounts of money. I don't think on so. That and, well, I mean. Okay, well, then, you know, then Amazon, then Jeff Bezos' $100 billion fortune isn't real. I mean, they make it's a not. lot of money. Well, it's not. It's based on the stock that he holds, and it's based on the projection that people think it's going to make a lot of money at some point, or that their other parts of their business right. will make a lot I of money. Mean, all right. Well, then it's a charity. I mean, what, what do you want me to say? I, like, they spend, they make no, huge what I want cash you to flow. Say is, what I want you to say is I'm not sure that their retail position is a real threat to American retailing. It looks like it is, but it might not be, because it might not make it. It's not true. I mean, that they're making a lot of money. <laughs> like they're not they're not showing accounting profits because they don't want to. But they they you know, Jeff Bezos is very clear. He's he says, we you know, anything we make, we invest back in. They are spending a ton of money on on uh, expanding operations. And they at any point, they could just choose to spend a little bit less and show a profit. And if they wanted to show a big profit, they could. But Amazon, you know, Jeff Bezos is. Is just it understands that he's building a, a long-term monopoly, and that's his play. Well, and so it's, it's, he, he can generate cash whenever he wants to. He just has chosen not to. Well, but he, that's um, I, my claim is that that's coming out of his um, cloud services, which are extremely successful, and I'm, we use them all the time, indirectly and directly. And that's a separate issue to be worried about too. But I'm just I'm just thinking about Whole Foods or bookstores, or I mean, this is one of the greatest times. In human, not one of. This is the greatest time in human history to be a consumer. You could argue that's a waste of money. Uh, many times it is, or that we get seduced by the material world. I think that's also true if we're not careful. But our our opportunity to buy clothing, books, everything at, at very low prices is gloriously good. I don't, I don't see anything alarming about Amazon as a retailer. So what do you? Well, that's, what are you worried but that's about? because you're thinking about you know you're not thinking about us as consumers, but you can't think about people as just consumers. You know we are citizens and we make things. And if you look at say, if you look at authors, right? All right, you, you think it's a great time to to have books because you can go on Amazon and buy a ton of books, right? And you can buy them and on a Kindle and download them instantly. Wow, that's amazing. It is. Well, you know what the the the. Average income of authors have has dropped by twenty five percent since uh, since Amazon came out with the Kindle, and probably more by by this time. I mean, this the stats stats a few years old. Now you might not care, okay, because you may not be um, an author. But, but I am an author, are, Matt. I am an author, and I love it. I mean, I I, I would. Okay, but hang on a second. Let me finish. Okay, so um, you you know, if you're an author. Um, uh, and there are people that, that used to make their living 
writing books, mid-level books, uh, or you're a band, right? And bands, you know, are getting just savaged. It's actually by YouTube more than any of the others. Yeah. Um, what's happened is there's this whole mid-tier of the artistic, uh, creative community that's whose livelihoods have just been shattered. And there are m- large numbers of books that have not been written because there's no money in it anymore. And that's a massive loss to the free flow of ideas in America. Beyond that, Amazon can choose and does choose which books to put in front of you. So, you know, they, they had a big fight with Hachette where they just pulled Hachette's books off of their shelves. And if you looked for certain books, they will, they will choose to promote other books in, in, um, uh, in, in front of those books uh, through their recommendation engine. And so they are manipulating the flow of information to you. They are manipulating the flow of ideas from author to reader in a way that we have never seen before. And that is incredibly dangerous. So sure, if you are just looking at low consumer prices and your ability to just acquire books for cheap prices, you might say, what a great time to be alive, even though I actually don't think that Amazon's prices are are necessarily that good. I think it's undeniable that they, as a consumer, it's an amazing platform. There are all sorts of aspects about who we are as a people, as a free people, as a creative people, as a people that have ideas, as a, as a people who bring crops to market that are incredibly disturbing. Amazon is not a th- something that you want to see if you want to have a free society, if you want to have a democracy, if you want to have citizens who have any dignity. Sure, if whoa, you want whoa, just free whoa. stuff. Hang on, hang on, hang on. That last piece, I disagree with just about everything you just said, but that's okay. That last piece, I don't understand at all. My dignity as a citizen is being impaired by the fact that Amazon has lots of books for sale that are relatively no, cheap. No, it's being impaired by the fact that Amazon now controls uh, and manipulates the flow of information between the book reading public and the book and the book writing uh, community. And that's that's just undeniable. That's what they do. They choose who gets paid. They choose who doesn't get paid. They choose who succeeds. They choose who doesn't who don't succeed. Um, and they choose what 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 gets read. And yeah, there's it's not it's not total control, but it's a vast amount of control that we've never seen before. And Amazon, by the way, is not only the biggest bookseller in the country by far. I mean, they sell all basically all ebooks go through Amazon and most of the non ebooks go through Amazon. But they are now uh, also the biggest publisher um, in the in the country, which means that if you want to, you know, they can manipulate the their platform to move books on their own publishing platform um, above and beyond books that are published by other publishers. So there's a whole set of conflicts of interest that are baked into here, and there's an enormous amount of power that Amazon can use to sell what they want and promote the ideas uh, that they want and not promote the ideas that they don't want to promote. So this is happening in a lot of other places, of course, not just at Amazon. It's happening at Netflix, right, where Netflix makes their own movies that compete with the movies that I subscribe to on their service. And yet, and this is where I disagree with you, and you can respond to it, and yet I think it's the greatest time in human history to be either a creator or a consumer. That mid-tier hollowing out you're worried about, I don't get it. I bet there are more – I don't even have the data – so I'm open to being shown I'm wrong. I challenge and expect you to have it at your fingertips. Some of our listeners can find it. More books get published. There's more music than ever before. The quality of, of entertainment, television and movies is off the charts better than, than it was 20 years ago and 50 years ago. It's, it's mind-bogglingly better. 
there's an enormous amount of opportunity to explore things. And I have many other sources beside Amazon where I find out about books I want to read. I can go to Goodreads. I can read the New York Times book review. And compared to 25 years ago when people were stuck with a bookstore that had maybe 3,000 – that would be a lot – 3,000 copies, 3,000 different books in, in stock. And, and then, then we had the – we finally got the uh, Barnes & Noble that came along in Borders that expanded that to, to a much bigger number. But it's dwarfed, dwarfed by Amazon. So the amount of opportunity people have to learn and explore is, is it's just unparalleled. So I don't see this this sort of desert of drying up of citizen access to, to information. Now, I am worried about about the media and news. I'll come to that. But do you want to respond to that point about creation, creative folks in music and, and the arts? Well, yeah. I mean, I'll just say, you know, the 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 data like I got it. It was that that data on the on income is from uh, the Authors Guild. Um, so there's an author, T.J. Styles, um, who's won. Um, National Book Award, a Pulitzer Prize, um, actually multiple Pulitzer Prizes. Uh, he's, you know, written books on, uh, he mostly writes about uh, history. Um, so he's written, he used to be an editor. So he, he wrote about um, Jesse James, Last Rebel of the Civil War, The First Tycoon, The Epic Life of Cornelius Vanderbilt, um, a book back about uh, Custer. And he kind of gave a speech and he was, he just pointed out that, to actually write, he spends about four or five years writing each of his books, and his books are just great, and they change the way that we understand our culture. Um, and he he just said, he's like, look, these are expensive books to write. It takes four or five years of research and writing to actually do this. And the way that Amazon is structuring the book market means makes it much, much harder for people to actually write books like this. Now, he's that it, he's fine because his books are are very popular, but he's noted that if he were just starting out, it would be much, much, much harder for him to actually do that. Now, um, what you find uh, in in the book market itself, I mean, the, the, the 25% drop in income is for the kind of median book writer. If you're trying to get into the, the book market now, it's just much harder if you're an author. And you may not care because you might think, well, I have plenty of choices for books, but uh, but a book isn't, you know, having writing a book uh, about the the life of Cornelius Vanderbilt and the construction of corporate America that's fun to read and compelling and well sourced. Um, the amount of time and effort that goes into making a book like that is very different than you know a book that you know George Bush used to read, which was called the Fart Book. That is just like a book of fart jokes. It's like. Those are both books. And you can say, well, now we have access to more books than we've ever had before. But the question isn't whether we have access to more books. The question is whether we have access to a good set of, of diverse ideas that are, that are compelling and, effect, and essential for democracy. And I don't think that we actually do. I think the number of ideas that we have access to is, is drying up um, and, and it's masked by this illusion of choice um, which is really what you're pointing to. Look at all this. Look at all this choice. Why is that an illusion? Anybody can go to Medium right now and write fantastic long, long essays, share them with lots of people. Anybody can start. But again, a blog. it's like it's, what you're saying is is that the fart book is a book, so it's the same as you know uh, uh, Shakespeare, right? It, they're not the same I product. Don't think like that's I can write, what I can I'm write saying, but it is. You're saying you can no. go to Medium and write a wonderful essay. I'm saying like, a what about going? Person. What about going to Iraq? 
and spending a month there and trying to understand the culture and what what the conflict has done and and actually putting something in writing around that that those are both very you think that's you know, harder wonderful to do? you think that's harder to do now than well i'm just saying that they're different ago? i just think that they're different products of course and they one are. of them takes massive amounts of financing yeah. and one of them takes a smart person sitting like writing for an afternoon yeah. or two afternoons that's- and you can look at them and say wow there's all this great choice but it's like in fact no you don't have a great choice you used to have a whole bunch of foreign bureaus and they, they would do a lot of different reporting. And now you have a bunch of different TV channels, but no foreign bureaus. So are you really getting more and better foreign coverage just because you can use your, your TV clicker or look on, your, on the Internet and find lots of different people talking about foreign stuff? Of course not. You're getting worse information. Um, it just looks like you have more of a choice. It's like the beer market, right, where people say, well, look at all of these choices of beers when, in fact, most of the beer you buy or most of the toothpaste you buy or most of the um, the consumer products that you buy, even though you think you have this great illusion, this, this, all these great choices are, in fact, made by a small number of conglomerates. So you're, you're in fact, buying. Uh, when you drink a beer, you're effectively probably buying from AB InBev, even if you think you're buying from some sort of small that's, yeah, that's uh, a tough case to make. You're, yes, it's true that Anheuser-Busch and others own a lot of the brands. But again, this is the greatest time in America to drink craft beer made by hundreds of independent producers around the country. I mean, look, you can say that, but you know, I, true. I, I talk so I to, it, I talk to, I talk to, to independent craft brewers, and what is happening now is you've got this, the, 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 this massive private equity and and conglomerate uh, beer conglomerate buyout mania going on you have abmbev which is also kind of concentrated its power in the production of hops choosing to deny um, to deny hops to to companies that it, it that that it wants to deny hops to they have enormous control over distribution and so you might say well this is the greatest time to be alive but you know, because there's all of these sort of choices. In fact, you don't really have as many choices as you think. And what about the rights of all of those people that want to brew beer or all those people that want to write books or want to create or want to produce things or want to bring their crops to market? This matters. This is the essence of America, the ability to make things, to tinker, to to yeah, create. I agree. And you're saying that that doesn't matter. No, You're just I, saying, well, I as long the, as I get cheap, free stuff well, and I can pretend like I have this big no, set I, of choices, I think it's, it's fine. But that matters. And you can't discount the fact that, that those the rights of those people are being violated. Their ability their rights to compete in open and fair markets. Well, I disagree with you totally. But the where I disagree with you is I happen to agree with what you said a minute ago that you, that you said I didn't agree. I agree with you that the ability to bring your talents to the marketplace is what makes America great. I just think those opportunities are extraordinary right now. I think you can write a great book. You can build a great beer. You can create an incredible new line of clothing. They're all over the place. There are all these incredible small companies creating shoes and shirts and all kinds of things are going on. The rate of small business formation is at a 50-year low. I know, but that 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 doesn't disprove my point. That's well, no, but you're not. You're not actually. You're just saying these things like it's your impression that these things are true. Are you telling in me? Fact, there's are no you telling data. me? Oh yeah. Are you telling me that if I want to say learn about, oh, let's say Chinese history, Russian history, American history, the Civil War, that I don't have more access that that a school child today doesn't have more access than they had say 25 years ago. To all kinds of new. Well, wait a second. You're not. You're just. You're just running. You're just running in circles, right? So you first you said that people have more. You know, have more access to 
um, to beer and to a whole bunch of they different. Do. Well, but that's not true. That's just not true. I mean, they, there, there's, there is less access to like you're, you, There are many places you go where you just can't. You know, you think you're buying an independent craft brew, and you're not. And you think, you know, you're saying you support open and competitive markets, but Amazon's not a market, right? Go try to sell on Amazon. Like, see what happens. I mean, I can tell you that Amazon will, if they're, if your products are selling on Amazon and they're, and they're doing well, then Amazon will simply downgrade, like they will simply start selling it themselves. And when people search for it, Amazon will place their own, uh, uh, their, their own product ahead of yours. Well, when your that, book that, comes that, out on Monopoly Power and the, on the history of Monopoly no, but I'm in the saying, United like, States, like that's, they're not going to, they're not going to write another book next to it and down, underprice it. Your book's going to stand on its merit. It's going to get reviewed in good places, presumably, if it's well done, which I presume it will be. And you'll sell either a lot if it's really good or maybe not so many. And nothing's going to stop you from doing in fact, it. That's not, in fact, that's not true. No? Amazon has enormous power over – first of all, they can, they can decide whether they want to show um, – you know, they, the, which, whether they want to promote the Kindle version, the hardback version, the paperback version. And they can also decide – whether they want to promote used books, so the used book version of mine or not, and how the interface looks has a lot of, of difference. It, it depends very heavily on what flow of money actually moves to the publisher. Um, so they have a lot of choices, design choices. Uh, over. They also have choices over copyright and a whole series of other things. So they can structure not just, not just whether people you know, look for my book, but they can actually structure how my book is sold, what, I mean, I don't have a book out, but, but eventually when you do. I'll, yeah, I'll have a book when out. When you do. I'll, eventually I'll have a book out. But they can, they can make a lot of choices about how those, how books are sold. They can also, you know, make, make a lot of choices about, um, about how easy it is to find that book if you're browsing. And as, as you know, Don't they want me to find things, it? No. They don't want me to find your book? No, they don't, they, they, have, they don't care if they don't care if you find my book or not. They just want you to find a book. Yeah, that's true. Or they want you to watch, you know, Amazon Prime or whatever. They they don't care about whether you're finding the right book for you or the or the relationship that you and I have. Just like Facebook doesn't care whether clicking on the thing you're clicking on is good for you, makes you angry or or confuses you or is a, from a Russian bot. As long as you're clicking, you're fine. Right? So there's there's there's, there's no action. These are not markets. These are not uh, well-structured, open and fair yeah, institutions. These are, these are controlled intermediaries who have placed themselves between American citizens um, and our ability to actually interact with each other freely and fairly. Okay, well, I, we need to rebel I, against them the way we rebelled against the British East Indies Company. There we go. Mm, I'll just say one more thing and then I'll let you have the last word which is uh, this part of what we're talking about is a political question of how best to deal with the fact that some companies have gotten quite large. But we got off onto a more a different question in may, ways maybe more interesting, which is how has this transformation of, say, retailing affected our actual choice as opposed to our apparent choice? And what has it done to the livelihood and opportunities for people to be creative? And I, I, I want to make the claim that I think a musician today, a author today, a farmer today, a brewer today, a baker today has enormous opportunities that they didn't have 25 and 50 years ago for all kinds of reasons, not just 
because of the internet and not just because of Google and not just because of Amazon. But I just think you're um, a little, it, it, the glass is half full for me, maybe a, little more, maybe a lot more than half full as both a consumer and a creator. And I think other institutions will come along and have come along to help deal with this. We see all kinds of ways that, for example, it is expensive to spend five years writing a book. And we have more think tanks now, like you and I are both at a think tank, that gives us the luxury of having not have to make a living as a, say, uh, working in a boiler room, as William Faulkner did. And we can work on the books we want to work on. And I, I think it's a great time for that. But maybe, maybe I'm overly optimistic. I'll give you the I, I last will say word. this. I'll finish off with this. I think it could be an amazing time for entrepreneurship. And these technologies ha- are just unbelievable. And they can allow us to create the most wonderful, uh, creative, free society um, where we can compete and rise and fall on our own merits. Um, but because of the way that, and, and we can make that choice to make that happen. I mean, the, but right now, because of the political choices that we've made, the way we structure antitrust, among other things, but the way we see political economy, we have allowed these unbelievable technologies that are kind of, we were, we were great gifted, um, these arts that we were gifted, we have turned them into basically mechanisms to get us to look at ads. And so somebody said at Facebook said um, that the greatest minds of our generation are trying really hard uh, to figure out how to get people to click on more ads. And that is such a tragedy because imagine what we could do with this amazing technology if the incentives were, were oriented around political liberty and freedom instead of capturing power over other people. My guest today has been Matt Stoller. Matt, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. All right, thanks a lot. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.